Welcome to 10 Minute TechCom. This is Ryan Weber at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. These days, it seems like conspiracy theories are everywhere. If we don't stop this now, we can not only forget our republic and our freedom, but we can forget humanity because we'll be killed by this agenda. And the film rolls couldn't come to the Van Allen radiation belt. They had to broadcast back a TV signal. So they did doctor up photos and stuff for the public. Using other means than the mainstream media, the QAnon started communicating with each other through Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. The same social media that was set up by the cabal to monitor the people 24-7 were now used to find each other and to spread news and findings. There was no stopping us anymore. Those clips from Plandemic, a conspiracy video about the COVID-19 pandemic, Alex Jones, and QAnon, represent some of the hottest conspiracy theories as I record in 2020. But actually, conspiracy theories have been around for a long time. And I found them fascinating for a long time because it's so interesting to me how people can believe things that seem so outlandish. My guest today knows a lot more about conspiracy theories than I do because she researched them for her recent book. Dr. Jenny Rice is an associate professor of writing, rhetoric, and digital media at the University of Kentucky. She recently wrote Awful Archives, Conspiracy Theory, Rhetoric, and Acts of Evidence. I sat down with her to talk about how conspiracy theorists use evidence and why they're so difficult to persuade. One of her pieces of advice is to never argue directly with a conspiracy theorist because you won't win. But in the course of our conversation, we talk about how uncertain our own evidence is, and we discuss several conspiracy theories, including moon landing conspiracy theories, 9-11 truthers who argue that the Twin Towers were actually brought down by the U.S. government, and Sandy Hook truthers who argue that the 2012 shooting at the Sandy Hook Elementary School was entirely fake, even though it killed 26 people. Rice argues that talking about these kinds of conspiracy theories can actually help us understand evidence even in more mainstream claims, and how we ourselves use evidence to satisfy core ideas and core emotional needs that we all have. I hope you enjoy this interview. Thanks for joining me on the podcast, Jenny. I really appreciate you coming here to talk about conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists. And I guess a good way to start the conversation is just with the question, what is a conspiracy theory? How do you define it? How do you know one when you see one? So, I mean, there's sort of the boring answer, which is like a conspiracy in general is something that exists, right? Like the definition of conspiracy is just two or more people planning something, right? Two kids conspire to sneak out of their house or something. And then a conspiracy theory is just a theory that a conspiracy occurred. Um, but we don't tend to use it that, you know, because the way that we tend to use it, it has that pejorative meaning. And so generally when I think about for myself, when I think about conspiracy theories, I'm thinking about, you know, there are groups of people who don't believe a mainstream version of given events. But going further, just for myself, I think about people who often make extraordinary claims. And in fact, before I got started on all this, I used to think like conspiracy theorists, they offer these extraordinary claims with no evidence. But then I quickly, you know, change my mind as I'm doing all this research, like, oh, they have a lot, a lot of evidence, right? I think about people who, without, you know, judgment, I would say people who are sort of collecting a, a significant amount of you know, evidence in support of sort of an extraordinary claim that challenges a mainstream version of something. And so you can think about it that way, which has sort of a neutral twist to it. You know, 
without passing judgment. So, and, you know, conspiracy theorists themselves, I mean, it's a, it's a big group. When I first started asking for interviewers, I would sort of say like they're alternative researchers or that's sort of the boring answer. So you mentioned evidence there. You know, one of the big elements of your book is this issue of evidence. What counts as evidence? You know, what different groups are doing when they use evidence. When it comes to conspiracy theorists, how is it that they're using evidence? What role does evidence play in their work? So I spent the most time doing field work with 9-11 truthers. Again, that's their own name for themselves. So you would have like truther meetups or truther conventions, conferences. And, you know, what I found very quickly was I remember having a conversation with one person and talking about like belief, you know, like I would say, no, I, I do tend to believe the mainstream narrative about what you know, what events took place on 9-11. And, you know, the first question was like, what evidence do you have of that? Because they'll have, you know, mountains of evidence, you know, everything ranging from like physics and, you know, nanoparticles and all of these different things that I didn't have. So I'm basically, they're looking at me like, you're believing based on nothing beyond just, hey, this sounds like the most rational, logical explanation for it. I believe I saw, but I thought, actually, yeah, I mean, from their vantage point, I have, I'm basing my claim on very thin evidence. And there's a lot of sharing back and forth. I've heard some people say like 9-11 is sort of the first conspiracy born through social media because just of the sheer ease of sharing information back and forth. There's a lot of it. That to me was a real revelation about just the sheer volume of information that's being collected. So the conspiracy theorists would say, well, the evidence is on my side. Actually, the evidence proves my point of view. Very much. And this is one of the things that I sort of found a lot. Like the point of the book is really to figure out like evidence always seemed like one of those things that you just kind of take for granted as a concept. Like I know what evidence is and what it's not. And then the more I dig into it, I think like, now I'm not so sure. You know, I get to a point like, what is evidence? What is evidence doing? Like I would consider what they have as evidence. Now, I don't think it's credible or believable, you know, but they do seem to have something that they're sharing. I think one of the things that evidence can do, and this is not just for conspiracy theories, it's for all of us, but there's an activity, there's an action of collecting, right? One of my chapters, I talk about a study that Adorno and his colleagues did right after the World War, trying to gauge people's Americans' levels of anti-Semitism. And so they gave this really fascinating test to people, giving them a bunch of questions and asked them, like, how do you agree or disagree? How strongly? What they found was really fascinating because people would end up saying things like, I agree that Jews are too sealed off from the rest of society, right? They, they sort of stand alone. I agree very strongly with that. But then those same people would tend to agree uh, with a statement like, Jews try too hard to assimilate into culture. So you would think like, well, it can't be both. But Adorno said, no, it's, it, it really doesn't have to be one or the other because the bigger scope is what he called or what they called the nuclear idea. So all of these things are in support of the larger nuclear idea, just like, I don't like these people, right? So what they found is that it's the larger nuclear idea that's being supported. And so like gathering evidence, it doesn't matter. Like you, if the larger nuclear idea is sort of like, I don't like Jews, I don't trust them. Then you sort of like are constantly in this process of collecting, collecting, collecting. And it's that activity. So sort of like conspiracy theorists, the worst thing in the world for a 9-11 truth, you know, somebody who's really dedicated to this to like, 
get to the nitty gritty of it, solved it. And everybody's like, wow, you solved it. It's over. Right. It's all done. The conspiracy solved. We fixed it. We can go back to our lives now. And part of it is, you know, what they call it community or there's a sort of spin that keeps itself going and generates something. And it could be community. I mean, even 9-11 truthers argue amongst themselves, but it's that activity itself that almost seems like well, getting to the truth of the matter almost seems sometimes beside the point. You talk about this evidence-generating activity and this kind of perpetuation of the conspiracy theory. It seems like part of conspiracy theories is, you know, ultimately everything contributes to the conspiracy theory in some way. That's kind of the nature of it is that, you know, it's all it all fits together. Every little piece of evidence kind of fits in this overall narrative. So, yeah. So that's, you know, earlier when you said, like, well, what is a conspiracy theory? One one way that I think of a conspiracy theory differing from a different kind of theory is that there's an element of non-falsifiability. So falsifiability is always important, you know, in, in any kind of claims. So we want to be able to say, like, okay, I should, you know, potentially be able to somehow figure out a way to disprove this, right? So if I say, like, so-and-so is dead, I should be able to find, you know, a way to, you know, somehow prove that they're not. The problem, I think, with a lot of conspiracy theory discourse is that, you know, if you offer, for example, a counter argument, if you say, well, wait a minute, well, let me give you an example of, of this a different conspiracy that I sort of looked at. It's basically about this group called Majestic 12. So this is something that was born out of, you know, sort of like Cold War era thinking and UFOs. And so in the 80s, I think there's uh, some researchers, some very dedicated UFO, ufologists. They were two in particular, and they, be, they were sort of notorious in the UFO community, kind of, you know, even amongst those people were sort of questionable. But they claim to have found this document, basically, that is from the Eisenhower administration saying, like, we're going to set up this group called Majestic 12, MJ-12, right? Now, this document, this supposed document was accidentally found in the National Archives, wasn't supposed to be there, and it had nothing to do with any of the materials that was in the surrounding stuff. And so, you know, then the question is like, oh my God, they would say like, look at this document, this real thing, this proves that, you know, the government knows about these things, they're running secret operations, you know, so then a group of people said, no, look, I can actually tell this is not an authentic document, right? It's false. This is not from the Eisenhower administration. This is false. It's forgery. It's a fake. But then they say like, that proves that of course it is real, right? All these things are really going on because then the government wants to specifically kind of throw us off track with a forgery. So it proved my point all along. To get back to 9-11, Popular Mechanics had a very, very lengthy series of articles and eventually turned into a book sort of discounting and or debunking a lot of truther claims. You know, so then you would think like, okay, well, this is not official government. These are, this is popular mechanics, right? If they're private citizens doing these things, so there should be sort of like this neutral third party. But then the claim is like, well, of course they would put that out, right? They're government, they're clearly government shills. And so if you have, if you're working at that level, then it's like, well, then there's no evidence. So it's sometimes people call it self-sealing. So there is never going to be counter evidence you could offer. You know, this, this also works by calling people disinformation agents or talking about disinformation in general. So like, for example, if, you know, somebody comes out and seems extraordinarily 
wacky, you know, somebody's part of this 9-11. Just as an example, there's a woman named Judy Wood, who was actually a professor, an engineering professor who had a tenure track job at Clemson at one point. Now she's not working at the University of New York. She's one of the more fringe figures, even amongst 9-11 truthers, because she is one of what they call the no planers. So she thinks there actually were no planes that hit the building. They fell from microwave. I mean, I, I can't actually, she sent me all her stuff. I can't read it because I'm not, I don't have the background enough to read it. But, you know, she explains all these things. But even in that community, I mean, her claims seem way out there, right? The fact that there's no planes. I believe she actually believes her claims. But for people in that community, what they end up saying is she's a disinformation agent, right? She's a plant designed to make everybody look crazy. So even that, you know, I think like, at what level do you just have nothing's, a, you know, nothing's ever a coincidence, right? Everything adds up to something else. Right. So you talk about a specific situation in your book where NASA had really high quality film of the original 1969 moon landing. And then somehow in the course of events, this film has gotten lost. And for conspiracy theorists, sort of that absence of this evidence is itself evidence of the conspiracy theory. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, for me, I can, having worked in bureaucracies, I can totally believe that this stuff would get lost, you know, shipping, especially back then you're shipping things back and forth or mislabeled or something. I totally believe that. But that in itself is evidence for me of like, see, listen, when you're in a bureaucracy, things get mishandled. You know, that's evidence of something much different in this sense, like everything counts in sort of this type of conspiracy theory discourse. And when you're working at that level, then you're, of course, you're going to gain copious amounts of of stuff. But when I teach a course on conspiracy theories, one of the things that I really hate talking about, but it makes a lot of sense to students, is talking about the Sandy Hook truthers. And to me, this is one of the saddest cases because these particular truthers also seem to be the most just disregarding of, you know, respectfulness, harassing families where they end up saying that there was no mass shooting. It was all, you know, what's called crisis actors. So there were no children shot. These parents aren't even real. Everybody's fine. It was somehow designed. There are a lot of different theories about like, well, why would anybody go through this process, right? Maybe designed to sort of, you know, impose more uh, stringent rules on guns, which is very funny because it never seems to work, right? <laughs> or who knows what, you know? And I think that theory would be so much better if that were true. Like, I would prefer that to be the case, right? That this is a, a horrible government conspiracy and everybody's fine. But to me, the truth of what happened was not only not a totality, it's like it's, you, you cannot explain it in reality. It makes no sense. It's too awful, right? Yeah, I think about this too, because, you know, there are conspiracy theories where people believe that our world leaders are, you know, eight foot tall alien lizards. Right. That's David Icke's reptilian, yeah. And it just feels like, well, as strange as it seems, maybe it would be more comforting that there are giant lizards in control than that really no one is in control and just a bunch of random stuff happens that no one has planned out and that no one is taking care of. I mean, there's that, you know, but then the other part of it is, and I don't think people necessarily articulate this, but this is, I think what ends up happening is like my limitations, my own failures, my own problems are due to sort of outside forces. Right? We are all being potentially held back, but then me in particular, right? 
there's, you know, somebody is David Icke's a really interesting person. He's the, the kind of like the head reptilian figure and surprisingly more popular than you would think. And also very, very complicated his, his theories. But one of the things that he promotes, I think this is why it's attractive, is that physically, physically and mentally, we are capable of so much more. So living much, much longer, not being sick, being so much smarter, being able to do all these things. But these people are actually like non-human actors are sort of like keeping us from being at our full potential. We would never have to have vaccines. We would never have to have anything. It'd be no sickness. It'd be no illnesses, which is a really attractive. So, you know, you think like, well, look, I mean, all these bad things happen because of this other big thing over here. It's sort of nice to have somebody explaining these things to you. So many conspiracy theorists are smart people, right? They're intelligent. You know, I think our stereotype is that they're gullible and easily fooled, but it sounds like what they're doing is really intense research. Some of them are really intelligent about obscure things. So it sounds like, you know, it's a mistake to assume that these people are just gullible idiots. No. Yeah, that is my experience. I think a lot of them are, you know, I think there's a lot of, I would say, stereotypes and, you know, there's reasons for it, but there's a lot of stereotypes that, you know, sort of like they're mentally ill or they're crazy or they're just not smart enough. And I don't find that to be the case at all. Come from, you know, all walks of life. There's people who are very well educated. And the thing about it is, is that I don't think this has anything to do with education. Cass Sunstein is, is um, you know, a really great writer who I admire, but Sunstein's response years ago from like a political standpoint was, well, you know, they're sort of they have a crippled epistemology. And I don't think that that's the case. And I don't, but I also don't think like throwing more information at them is effective. You know, these people read a lot um, and, and consume a lot of information. And so, yeah, they're absolutely not unintelligent or anything. And the work that they're doing is actually pretty intellectual work. I think it's wrong most times. So to get back to one of the central questions of your book, After studying all these conspiracy theorists at work, how has that changed how you define evidence or what does that teach us about how evidence works in argument? I started to think of evidence as sort of like an act, an action. And so when we say, like, it sounds weird to put it this way, but we could say like doing evidence, you know, like, you know, how do I do evidence? Have I really done a lot of research into COVID-19? No, I haven't. I tend to put my faith in certain figures, right? And there's a lot of reasons behind that, that I'm also building on, right? It's, it's sort of the same process, not just conspiracy theorists, but, you know, I need to believe, you know, science, that there's, you know, scientists, and I, I, you know, it's feeding a certain nuclear idea for me as well, which is that we do live in some kind of, you know, science-based world, and there are such things as experts. My belief in that I'm doing this sort of building it up, right? It does something for me effectively. And so I think one thing we could look at is, you know, when we say like start critiquing people for, you know, well, lack of evidence, it's, it's helpful to say, what is this actually doing? What work is this doing for them? I think the way that we, we aren't going to ever persuade somebody is by offering counter evidence. I think that if there's a subtext in my whole book is that, you know, kind of give up on that style of debate where you're like, well, wait, what about this? And what about this? Um, because that don't 
for a lot of reasons, doesn't seem to go anywhere. And I think part of that is also because if we remember, it was kind of going back to this idea of like, there's all kinds of conflicting stuff. And so you can kind of take apart a conspiracy theorist and say like, well, wait a minute, this over here kind of conflicts with what you said over here. And if you go point by point, you're missing sort of the larger thing, right? Which is, what is this really doing for this person? And so sure, they're like, okay, it doesn't rest just on one point, right? There's a billion others to go back on. And so sort of going counterfact by counterfact um, misses the point. So here's one of the big questions then that is really relevant always, and especially right now with conspiracy theories circulating. How do you argue with a conspiracy theorist? So I think my answer is probably not super satisfying to to people who study rhetoric. I mean, I have a few different answers, but one of them is you don't. Having said that, one, one thing that I like is this idea that response is not to the individual making these claims, right? So response is more of a public response to, to the public, right? We have a responsibility to respond, not necessarily to this one person, but put something else out there, right? So we're responding to the polis or responding to the public. I think engaging one-on-one, that kind of debate is, I mean, you've seen, we've seen, how many times have we seen it? You know, you know, it doesn't, doesn't go anywhere, but also you're putting something, you know, think about what it is in that moment. You're responding to the polis as well. This isn't in the book, but this is something that people often debate, but they talk about what do you do with Holocaust deniers? Do you debunk them? Do you debate them or do you ignore them? And there's really good reasons for doing all three of those. But I think part of it is like, it demands a response in some way. And I think something that has been really positive that I've seen about people who are sort of fighting Holocaust denial is putting out, you know, something to the wider. So, you know, there's a lot of education, there's a lot of materials, there's rather than kind of spending time going line by line, right? And so we can change the way that we think of engaging. I won't say like, don't engage or don't respond, but think about what it is you're responding to. You know, there's the larger nuclear idea of many conspiracy theorists at the very, very top is, I don't like the government. I don't like this. I don't trust it. I don't feel free. I don't feel like I have, even if they have all the freedom in the world, right? I don't feel free. Um, And so this is why Richard Hofstadter talked really early on, kind of calling it like the paranoid style, saying that, Conspiracy theory has a long history and it's not uniquely American, but if we think about sort of our tendency to think like, I need to feel as free as possible and my freedom feels limited. And maybe that's limited because, you know, your opportunities in life are limited or you've had bad breaks or just, you know, like the economy right now is going to suck. And we know that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that in terms of engaging or debating or responding, what helps me is just to sort of keep in mind this idea that this evidence is doing something. And I think it does help to think like, all right, well, you know, in certain cases, there's this this feeling of being like something is limited for you. There's a great book by Susan Lepselter. She's a anthropologist and she did all these work with people who believe that they are UFO abductees. And it's really fascinating. And so she kind of comes at it the same way where she said, it's not really up to me to believe or not believe their stories. And that's not really my point anyway. My point is that she says that I kind they are saying something real. There's something real that they're talking about. And, you know, she ends up talking about, uh, this is just one 
one point that she makes, but she does end up talking about like, what is the feeling of being abducted, of being, you know, not in control of your own body. And some of these people have, you know, like they're sort of like the horrible abduction stories, right? Like you're being operated on and held down all these things. And, you know, she said like, if you listen, then they're telling you something about how they feel how they feel. The way that this comes out is by, you know, talking about being abducted by aliens and all this kind of stuff. But there's a narrative underneath that narrative that I think is another way to listen when we hear these things. You know, like what's going on right now, for example, with, you know, these all of the raging COVID-19 conspiracies. You know, in many ways, I thought like, wow, this is a a conspiracy theorist, either nightmare or dream come true. You actually are on lockdown for the first time. You know, this is always the fear, but there is real reason to be concerned. I mean, there's jobs lost. There are, this thing is unknown. You don't know where it is. It just sort of happened. It's a very scary time when we are feeling these things. I think this is a a time when conspiracy theories, I don't want to say comforting, but they offer a way to talk about how you're feeling. So there's a lot of fear and emotion at play when we're talking about conspiracy theories, as there is when we're talking about most types of rhetoric, even the stuff that others believe. Uh, And we need to sort of recognize that emotion that's running behind the arguments that conspiracy theorists are making. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think there's been really fascinating studies done with parents who are anti vaccination they're incredibly hard to convince to change their mind. And the CDC has spent a lot of money and time trying to figure out, well, what can we do to actually convince these parents that, yeah, you, you actually do vaccines are safe and it's better for your kids to do it, it's better for everybody. You know, all these things that you've heard are not true. And, you know, really what it comes down to is that one of the things that makes this the hardest of all is because now it's not just you're scared for yourself, you're scared for your child. And so, yeah, it comes down to like when they've done studies, still the most mind blowing study, one of the findings from I think a CDC study was that they took parents who were anti-vax, showed them a bunch of findings that, you know, autism is not called, caused by MMR, you know, it's, these are safe, these are the the, the beliefs that you have been told about what's in vaccines is not actually true. All of these kinds of things. And parents after that did say, I do tend to believe that evidence, but now I'm less likely to get them vaccinated. It's very strange. And so like some of the ways that this gets explained, it's sort of like you're it's called the backfire effect that because we're dealing just with sheer fear there's, I am actually now like less likely to do or more likely to do this thing. An example of this is a very famous example. So about cognitive dissonance was originally what they were studying. But one of the original psychologists who came up with this idea of cognitive dissonance or theory was um, he was studying doomsday cults. So this cult you know, had a following and the leader predicted that, you know, the world's going to end on this day. They came and went. And so you would normally think like, oh, okay, well, this person's a fraud. They don't know what they're doing. In fact, that cult gained followers after that because first of all, they explained it away of like, oh, do you see? We are so righteous. We actually saved the earth. But then people doubling down because could you imagine how awful it is to say, oh, I'm an idiot. This person's a fraud. I mean, you can do that, but it takes a lot for our minds, right? Our brains don't want to think that we've done something really stupid. We're like, no, this is definitely right. And I'm going to get even more into it than I was. So people double down when they get contradictory evidence presented to them in a sort of 
entrenches them even more in their existing point of view. And that's one of the reasons why arguing with conspiracy theorists is so ineffective. I also do. I mean, and this is the part that probably is, I am imagining, not a very popular answer. But I also do think that responding does have to do with, you know, we all know that rhetoric is architectonic, it's architecture, but it literally works through, you know, YouTube channels and these things. And so I'm very, I am very much in favor of the Alex Jones response. You know, we're eventually platforms just said, we're taking you off. You can't do this anymore. And, you know, there's all kinds of, we've heard these conversations for a long time about like, well, can Facebook actually silence a Holocaust denier, for example? There's good reason to, but that in itself is a is a response, right? And to me, it's a rhetorical response. So you are in favor of the decisions to remove like an Alex Jones, a conspiracy theorist like Alex Jones from YouTube of having YouTube refuse to air his videos. Yeah. And I, and I can see all of the problems with, you know, having said that, I am open to all of those ideas, of course. I mean, there's all kinds of problematic things about that. Yet I do find this to be a one kind of response as well, not the only response, but a response. So I think, yes, absolutely. You know, because, and the, the reason for it is because we had sort of have this free model of, hey, we should let everybody speak because then we can debate, you know, and hear the evidence and all that kind of stuff. But what we're finding is like, that's not how this works, right? And so, you know, I think that there's very, very good reason for example, you know, removing Stormfront's website or, you know, a Holocaust denier's Facebook page taken down or something along those lines. The same thing with misinformation with COVID-19, right? That I think absolutely there's good arguments to be made against this sort of free marketplace of ideas. Put everything out there and then we'll all decide. I'm like, no, that's not how evidence works. Is there a danger though? And so YouTube takes Alex Jones down and then that actually just reinforces him saying like, look, there's a big conspiracy against me. They're out to get me. I'm speaking the truth. And so they, they're they on to me. And that's proof. The fact that they took me down is really proof that this conspiracy is real. Yes, absolutely. At the same time, you know, he's lost a lot. He lost a lot of money. He's lost a lot of ability to, to do these things. And like I said, I, I, I think this is one type of response and not the only one and not just blanket things I don't like should just be taken off, right? But I think when, you know, collectively as a public, if we're seeing damage being done, in the case of Alex Jones, the thing that led platforms to pull him was that he was advancing and spearheading the Sandy Hook conspiracy, which was leading to families being harassed. And there was no way to counter that. One of the people I talk about in the last chapter, it's uh, a dad of, you know, one of the kids who was, was killed. And he himself said before this, he was sort of conspiracy theory minded. So he was like, I get these people. And so his first response is like, I know these people, these are my people. I'm going to sort of debate them and share all this information to prove. And that just made it worse. And eventually he was like, fuck this. This is not how things work. And so he went the other direction. He was like, every time they put up a picture, right, you're infringing on copyright, you're doing this, you're doing that. So he's, he went after their means of communication, which I think if we're being serious, that rhetoric is not just words, speech, text, then we, we really are talking about this 
is a kind of rhetorical response. Maybe it's one we don't like, but it is a rhetorical response. Well, and you mentioned this idea that, you know, let's just put all our ideas out there in the public square and the public will evaluate them and decide what's true. But these people that you're talking about, they're not playing by those rules. These anonymous trolls who are sending death threats to people whose kids were killed, you know, they're not playing fairly either. And so it seems like you can't expect sort of our traditional notion of the public square to be able to handle that kind of a threat. And I think once, you know, you you have this, like to go back to the falsifiability is sort of what I fall back on a lot. If you are making these claims, but you're not offering any chance for somebody to come in and potentially bust a hole in it, if there's no way, if there's not a single shred of evidence I could offer you that would potentially change your mind if it existed, then to me, I'm thinking like, this is what I think a dangerous claim is. It goes for all of us, you know? So if I am just unwilling ever to hear any evidence at all that 9-11 was somehow, there's some kind of inside element to it, if I'm, I don't believe that, but still, if I am completely unwilling to ever, ever be presented with some evidence, and I don't think that would ever come about, I, I, I think that I'm in working in sort of a, a dangerous kind of discourse. So, like, when I teach a class on conspiracy theories, we begin by with the, Michael Shermer's book, is great. And he talks about the, what the word skeptic came from in Greek. And so skepsis means actually, like, pause. So it's not like, I'm a skeptic, so I don't believe anything. But I like this idea that you, are you willing to pause for a second and look at something else? If not, then you're in the realm of non-skepticism. Well, thanks for talking with us about this. I find this sort of endlessly fascinating and really relevant. So I appreciate the work and a great job on the book. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great.